please take out your Bibles and turn in them to Jonah chapter number one. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you, and you can take that Bible and in the front portion of it turn to page 657, and you will be at Jonah chapter one. I want to ask a very probing question as we begin today. How many people here like to fish? Let me see some hands. So we've got a lot of fishermen and fisherwomen out there. And one of the keystone hallmarks of fishing are fish tales. And there's a lot of crazy fish tales out there. I want to share with you a couple of them this morning. This fish tale is told by Jim. And he says, while fishing for bass with a buddy who had never fished before, I went to set the hook after feeling a fish take my rubber worm. I set the hook so hard that I pulled the fish from the water and it flew through the air and hit my buddy in the head. Now it was only a sunfish, but the top fin poked him in the head, cutting him, and he began bleeding from the side of his forehead. In fact, he was bleeding so much he had to wear a bandage on his head for three days to keep it from bleeding. That was his first and last time he ever fished. His girlfriend said, that's too dangerous. I don't want you doing that anymore. <laughs> well, that's a crazy fish tale. Here's another one from Little Rock, Arkansas, one that packs a wallop. Seth Russell, 15, of Grosset, Arkansas, was out on the lake, and uh, he was on one of those inner tubes being pulled behind a boat. And while he was being pulled, a silver Asian carp leaped from the water and smacked him in the face. Seth ended up knocked unconscious with a broken jaw. I mean, fishing is a little dangerous. Fish are dangerous. His mother, Linda Russell, said this. He doesn't remember anything at all. He was just laughing and enjoying himself. The next thing he remembers, he's waking up in the hospital. So you got to look out for those fish. And then a third fish tale I want to share with you uh, is told by Joby Ann. She said, I was babysitting for a friend, and the child I was babysitting was a young boy of about seven. So I decided to take him to a local lake, and I bought some night crawler worms to fish with. On his very first cast, the seven-year-old cast his line straight up into the air where there was a bird flying by. And the bird decided to take advantage of the free meal. And so the boy had a great story to tell his mom when she picked him up about how he went fishing and caught a bird. Now there are a lot of crazy fish tales out there. But they're not as wild and crazy as the wildest and the craziest that I know of. And that's found in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17 where it says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And the fish story ends in chapter 2 and verse 10, when it says, then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now that is a wild and crazy fish story. But what is really interesting is this, what happens between those two verses is really the most important thing. 
Now, we have been studying the book of Jonah, and I want to just remind you that in the book of Jonah, Jonah is running from the will of God. He has strayed from God's path. He is headed down. He is in a spiral of disobedience that goes downward. And yet, as we saw last week, the heaven, the hound of heaven, is on his trail. And the title I've given to today's message is A Whale of a Dilemma, or we could call it The Hound of Heaven, part number two. And here's the plan that we have today. We're going to look at three things. First of all, we're going to look at the possibilities. There are some possibilities regarding the fish and some possibilities regarding Jonah. And then we're going to look at the prayer of Jonah and then thirdly, we're going to draw some lessons from all of this. So we're going to look at the possibilities. There are some possibilities related to the fish and related to Jonah. We're going to look at Jonah's prayer that is laid out for us in chapter 2. And then we're going to draw some lessons from all of this this morning. So that's where we're going. Now we want to begin by looking at some possibilities regarding the fish. Now as you know, this is one of the books that critics like to attack in the Bible. And the critics like to come along and they would say something like this, Jonah being swallowed by a whale, a whale doesn't have a gullet large enough to swallow a man. And then they would say, and even if it did, there is no way that he could survive in the stomach of the fish for three days. Their presupposition, miracles cannot happen. They are fictional fantasy. And thus, this could only be true, what we see in the pages of Jonah, if there is some naturalistic explanation of how it happened. And they would conclude that it is impossible for this to happen. Therefore, this is a legend. Or it has some sort of allegorical meaning to it. You know, we like to say in our culture that someone was swallowed by their own pride. And they would say, well, that kind of an allegorical, figurative thought is really what must be involved here, because this is impossible. This really never happened. Now, I want to make several observations about that common position, and the first one is this. The Bible does not say that this was a whale that swallowed Jonah. If you notice in verse 17, it says, the Lord appointed a great fish. Just like we have in English, that's exactly the way the Hebrew is constructed. Just the normal word for fish and the normal word for great, and they are thrown together. It was a great fish that swallowed him. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, is reflecting back on this event and the history behind it, it says there, it uses a different term from the Greek language, it says that he was swallowed up by a ketos, K-E-T-O-S, a great monster of some sort. In other words, the indication seems to be this was some sort of a monster-sized fish, called a great fish in 117. Now that word great, don't underestimate how great great really is in the book it talks about the great wind and the great storm in chapter 1 and verse 4 that they went through. And remember, these were the seasoned sailors who would go back and forth on the three-year journey to Tarshish. 
And they would say this was the greatest storm that they had ever seen. It was a great storm. And then it talks about in the book of Jonah, the great city of Nineveh, chapter 1 and verse 2, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, chapter 4 and verse 1. And remember, we talked about what a, I mean, this wasn't just a great city. This was a great city and the huge walls that they had and the awesome size of it all. So when he says it was a great fish, we're talking record-setting type things. Now, I also want to make this little observation, though. And that is that sperm whales, which are present in the Mediterranean and in the Atlantic Ocean, we're not really sure where this took place, can swallow large sharks. Now, if you've ever seen a large shark, you can well imagine that if they can swallow that, they could also swallow a person. And then whale sharks, we know, are able to swallow very large objects. Now some of you may be thinking, well wait a minute, now I've heard stories, I've heard stories over the years, I've heard tales, they come out of the whaling industry that there have been men who have been swallowed by a whale before. And if you've heard those stories, you might know that the most prominent one comes out of the late 1800s when there was a, a man by the name of James Bartley, and James Bartley was on a whaling mission on a whaling boat and he fell overboard and disappeared, and they, they didn't know where he went. And then they caught this whale that they were chasing and had him on board the ship, as the story relates. And as they began to cut the whale apart to get the parts of the whale that they wanted to harvest it for, to their surprise inside, as the story tells, they found James Bartley, who had survived in there and uh, had been actually discolored by the digestive juices of the whale. That's a story that's been around a long time. In fact, I have an article in my file from the Parade magazine from 1982 talking about James Bartley's story. Now, what's interesting about that is that uh, Edward Davis, who's an associate professor of science and history at Messiah College, decided that he'd heard this enough and read about this enough, he wanted to track it down. He wanted to research the validity of it, and he spent years searching all the written records and tracking back if this place recorded it, where was their source. And he actually visited the actual locations of all of this. And basically, what Dr. Davis did is he debunked the accuracy of that story. Even though it's been repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated, it appears that it really never happened. Now, here's what I want you to understand. No matter how it happened, and no matter what happened, this was a miracle. This was a miracle in the book of Jonah. I mean, look again at verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. I mean, why should that be a surprise that God could do that? I mean, if a man has, has been able to develop a submarine that can take you as an individual three and three-quarters miles deep into the ocean, and if man has been able to design a spacecraft that can take us to the moon, what is the big surprise that God could appoint a great fish to swallow Jonah? I mean, if the wind and the sea will obey him, remember we saw that in chapter 1? What happened when Jonah went out of the ship? Immediately, woof, everything got calm. 
in Mark chapter 4, verse 39, when Jesus was in the storm of the disciples, and he just said to the storm, hush, be still, and it went still. See, if God's able to do those kinds of things, it's just no big deal that he could pull off the miracle of appointing a great fish to swallow Jonah. And I want you to know, this is not the only miracle in, in, the, in the Bible that talks about a fish. I want you to keep your finger here. Turn with me in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 24. Matthew 17, 24. And in, in verse 24, the disciples come to Capernaum, and there were tax collectors there who were collecting the two drachma tax, and they came to Peter and says, they say to Peter, does your teacher not pay his taxes? Does he not pay the two drachma tax? And, and Jesus and Peter have a little interaction over this about the validity of the tax and so forth. But notice he says in verse 27, however, even though we are really exempt so that we do not offend them, here's what he says to Peter, I want you to go to the sea and I want you to throw in a hook. And I want you to take the first fish that comes up. And then when you open the mouth of the first fish, you will find in the mouth of the fish a shekel. Take the shekel and give it to them to pay for your taxes and mine. See, God is able to do stuff like this. That is a miracle when you say, I want you to just go out, cast your line, first fish that you catch, you open up the mouth, there's the money to pay the taxes. This is a miracle, and it's a miracle in Jonah chapter 1. God is a God who can do miracles. And here's what's interesting to me. People get so hung up on the great fish that they miss the great God who is at work, both before this event and afterwards. Now, that's some possibilities related to the fish. The second thing we wanted to look at is some possibilities related to Jonah, and there are really two of them as we look at chapter number two. The first possibility is that in chapter two, Jonah died, that he actually died. And there are a number of scholars that I respect highly who conclude that Jonah dies in chapter 2. And that is a very possible understanding of chapter 2. They would look at things like verse 5, which they think is a good description of him drowning. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. That would mean he would be down towards the bottom of the sea. And what they would believe, if they believed that Jonah died in, in, in chapter 2, is they would believe that what happens is that the fish swallows his body, but that his soul goes to Hades. And that most of the prayer that we see laid out in chapter 2 comes from there, as the real Jonah is in Hades praying to God. And if that's the case that Jonah died, then the miracle that we see really is a miracle of resurrection. That he died and then he is resurrected. But there is another possibility and that is in chapter 2 that Jonah lived. And just in my personal opinion, I just think that fits the whole context a little bit better overall. You notice you have Verse 7, 
where he says, while I was fainting away, as it says in the New American Standard, or as it says in the NIV, while my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord and I prayed. And if it is true that Jonah lived through chapter 2, then the miracle is that he was kept alive and that the prayer that he gives came from the belly of the fish. So let's look at the prayer itself. And you can break the prayer in chapter 2 down into four parts. First of all, you have a summary in verses 1 and 2. This is basically where he just gives a summary of what happened. And then he begins to break down details. We have Jonah's dilemma in verses 3 to 6. We have Jonah's appeal to God in verses 7 to 9. And then we have the Lord's provision, the Lord's answer in verse 10. So let's look at this in a little bit more detail. Begins with a summary. Then we have Jonah's dilemma, Jonah's appeal, and then the Lord's provision. So let's look at the, the summary of this. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried to help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. I think verse 2 begins with a, a key connective, and that is the connective then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. It appears to me after marinating inside the fish for three days, he decides, I think I'm going to pray now. now. Now that's a real contrast with where Jonah was earlier. Remember back in chapter number 1? Earlier, what did we get out of Jonah? We got silence out of him. We got passive indifference. We saw spiritual complacency. We saw a lack of prayer. Everyone else was in a panic and told him to pray, and he doesn't pray. Now, he's praying. Why is he praying? Because God put him into a situation. God put him into a dilemma and a difficulty in his life. And why is it that he had to be pushed to the edge by God before he could acknowledge that he was off track? And we might ask ourselves the same question. Why is it that God has to push us to the edge before we will acknowledge that we are off track? Why is it sometimes we have to wait for our health to fail before we can acknowledge that we're really not in the place that we ought to be? Why is it we have to have God push us to the point that maybe our job is snatched away before we will acknowledge that we are off track spiritually? Why is it that sometimes we have to have the dilemma of turmoil with our children or turmoil in our marriage to have that pop up before we will acknowledge to God that I have been places I shouldn't be. Why is it we have to be pushed to the edge where maybe we have very significant financial problems for us to admit that we're not where we ought to be? Now, 
important to understand this. All of those kinds of issues can arise even when we are on track spiritually. I mean, even when we're on track spiritually, you can have health issues, your job might go away, you can have turmoil with your children, you can have money problems. But the question is, why does it, is it <laughs> that God so often has to push us to the edge before we will acknowledge that we're off track spiritually? And I don't know all of the answers to that, but here's part of the answer. I know this is true because of what goes on in my own life. You see, it's at the edge that our frailty before God is revealed. It's at the edge that our sinful tendencies are unmasked before God. It's at that edge when God puts us into that dilemma that our vision for God can be renewed and re-clarified. It's when we're on the edge and we've been pushed into that dilemma that we will rediscover what is life indeed. And I've experienced that kind of thing in my own life. God pushes you into a, into a health corner and just so much is revealed. You know your frailty like you haven't known in a long time. Your vision for God just gets renewed and clarified. What's really interesting in chapter 2 is that Jonah uses a lot of phrases from the book of Psalms. Obviously, he'd been a student of the book of Psalms. And I'm not going to show you what all of them are, and we'll track them all back, but a lot of the phrases here come straight from the book of Psalms. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that when he found himself in this great dilemma, in, in this darkness of the belly of the fish, he began to reflect back on Scripture. He began to think back about what God's Word has to say. And men and women, that's one of the reasons why we talk so much about the Word of God and why we encourage you to study the Word of God and to know the Word of God and to memorize the Word of God so that when we're in those times of great dilemma and we're pushed to the edge, that the truth of the Word of God comes flooding back to us. And so that's what we see from Jonah. He begins to turn back to Scripture for comfort. Notice what it says there in verse 2. He says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. He thought he was at the brink of death. He was as good as dead. And so he prayed, and God heard his voice. That leads us to his dilemma, which he unpacks in more detail um, beginning there in verse 3. Notice in verse 3, he says, For you, God, had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all your breakers and billows passed over me. Just a sense of being in this water and everything. And, and then what I want you to notice, uh, which I think is very, very important in particular, is the very first words of verse 3. For you... God cast me into the deep. Why did Jonah end up out in the ocean, out in the sea? Because it was Jonah's own suggestion, and it was the sailors who picked him up and threw him. But what does he say now? 
as he's beginning to process things. He's saying to God, you cast me into the deep. He is acknowledging the hand that was behind everything. He's really acknowledging the sovereignty of God here. He's acknowledging that, God, you had this planned all along. I thought I was making the decisions, but you were making the decisions. You were the one that did it. And then notice what it says in verse 4. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. And what's really interesting to me is if you follow the, the flow as he unpacks his dilemma in verse 3 and in verse 4 and in verse 5 and in verse 6, you'll get a feeling for the desperation that he was experiencing. And yet you come to verse 4 when he says, I, was, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. That phrase is a statement of confidence. What is interesting to me is, as he's unpacking his dilemma, that statement of confidence doesn't seem to fit the flow of the rest of the context. It's interesting to note that there is an alternative reading to the last part of verse 4. And that reading is expressed in the New Living Translation, where instead of a statement of confidence that he's making, it is a question. I have been expelled from your sight. How will I look again towards your holy temple? I'm in this dark fish. <laughs> I don't see a lot of hope here. Will I ever be able to enjoy your holy temple again? And then he goes on to describe the dilemma in verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains, just down to the lowest parts of the sea. And by the way, it's interesting when he says there in verse 6, I descended. Remember, his journey down began in chapter 1 in verse 3. And he's been going down and down and down, started going down to Joppa, then down into the ship, and on and on. And now we have him descending to the lower parts of the sea. He feels he is doomed to death. And that leads us to Jonah's appeal in verse 7. Notice it. He says in verse 7, While I was fainting away, like the NIV, while my life was ebbing away. The, the New Living Translation says, when I lost all hope. It's when I thought I was checking out. He says, I remembered the Lord. I remembered God's character. I remembered who was God. And I made an appeal to him. I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then he says something very interesting in verse 8. He says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. This is sort of puzzled interpreters because we see him making an appeal to the Lord and then he makes this statement, those who regard vain idols. Who's he talking about? Some would say he's making a reference back to the sailors who'd been on the ship and who had all these various gods. 
Some people say, no, he's making a reference to the future, to Nineveh, where he's going to be delivering a message of potential judgment. But personally, I think what we have in verse 8 is a self-assessment, a confession, really, from Jonah to the Lord. He says, those who regard vain idols, the NIV says, those who cling to worthless idols. He is making a confession here. He is making an acknowledgement. He's saying, I have been an idol worshiper. And, and he'd made an idol out of his own pride. He had enshrined his own will over the will of God. He had asserted his own independence. God said, do this. He said, no, I'm going to do the opposite. He was pursuing a life away from God. Those who regard vain idols, and remember men and women, we are Jonah. And I struggle with idols, and you struggle with idols. In fact, in 1 John 5, 21, the Apostle John writes and he says this, guard yourselves from idols. See, one of the problems we have is we think about idols. That's just something that happens way out there in pagan land or that's something that happened in the past. No, it's something that can happen now and we need to guard ourselves from idols. You say, well, what's an idol? Anything that takes the place of God in your life is an idol. Anything that you run to when you should run to Him is an idol. And we make all kinds of things with, uh, uh, into idols, and there are, are some, certain idols that you're going to struggle with and certain ones that I may struggle with. One idol that a lot of people have is money, where money actually takes the place of God in our life. It's something we run to when we should run to Him. Another very common idol would be sex. And we find ourselves running to that when we should be running to Him. An idol can be prominence and popularity where you just want everybody to know who you are and you want everybody talking about you and that begins to take the place of God in one's life. It can be power and influence. I want to be able to affect people and move people. It can be even something as simple as fun. Not that we shouldn't have fun, but where fun begins to take the place of God. And fun is what we run to. I just want to enjoy myself and just have a good time all the time instead of running to Him. Someone has said this, the human heart is a relentless factory of idolatry. Wow, that's a great true statement. The human heart is a relentless factory of idolatry. So let me ask you the question, what is the idol that you struggle with? Do you have an idol in your life that you're placing before Jesus? We need to guard ourselves from idols. He's admitting his own turning to idols. But here's what I particularly want you to notice. This is fascinating to me. He says, those who regard vain idols, verse 8, forsake their faithfulness. Now that seems a little puzzling. 
I prefer the way the NIV translates it. Those who regard vain idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's what it says. In other words, those who turn to idols in our life, we end up missing the blessing that God desires us to have. We will miss that. We will forfeit the grace that could have been ours. And men and women, I, I just want us to have this very clear in our mind. God truly has your best interest at heart. He always has and he always will. But you see, there's a lie that comes from the pit of hell that says to us, God doesn't really care about you. God doesn't really want your best. You need to figure out a better way. And when you hear those kind of words and you have those kind of thoughts, you must recognize from where they come. They come from the pit of hell. Don't buy it. Do not buy the lie that God doesn't care about you and that God doesn't want your best. I mean, what is the, the nickname of the enemy? The nickname of the enemy is the destroyer. That's what he wants to do in your life. He wants to destroy you and destroy your relationships. And yet, what a contrast with the names of God. You know, Yahweh God, who's a God of personal relationship. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides all that you need. That's who he is. He is, if you know him personally, your Abba Father, your Dad, you see, it's important for us to understand God truly has our best interest at heart. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy it. Those who regard vain idols are going to forfeit grace that could be theirs. Miss the blessing that God desires us to have. Now here's what's interesting as we come down to verse 9. I believe verse 9 is what the Lord wanted to see out of Jonah. Verse 9 tells us shows us where his heart was. He says in verse 9 to God, but I will sacrifice to you. God, I, I'm going to worship you. I've been running from you. I've been way off track, but I'm going to change that. I'm going to present myself to you as a living sacrifice. And I'm going to do that in verse 9 with a voice of thanksgiving rather than a voice of grumbling with a voice of thanksgiving. I think he was committing to God to take a Psalm 100 approach. Turn with me to Psalm 100. He'd been running from God, and God now slammed him into a fish. And he says, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I'm not going to be grumbling. I'm going to take a Psalm 100 approach. I'm going to shout joyfully to the Lord. I'm going to serve the Lord with gladness. I'm going to come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Even though I'm still in the dilemma, I'm going to have that kind of an approach. I'm going to enter his gates with thanksgiving, give thanks to him, bless his name because he's 
good and his loving kindness is everlasting. I will sacrifice to you back in Jonah 2. I will do it with a voice of thanksgiving. And that which I have vowed, I will pay. He's saying, God, I am going to obey your will. You told me to go to Nineveh. I ran the opposite direction. I will obey what you have to say. And then he says in verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. He's saying this idea of rescuing perishing people, that's God's work. That's God's business. I shouldn't be making a judgment on that. That's your business. And you said you wanted me to do something in your business, and I'm going to do it. Rescuing the perishing is your work, God. Now let me ask you this question. As Jonah makes these corrective statements, has he fully arrived? Has he fully arrived? Does he have nothing left to learn? <laughs> Does he need no more growth at all spiritually? Well, if, you, if you've read the next chapter, you know that there's more to come. There's more that he needs to learn. But, and God knew his heart inside and out. But here's what I want you to notice. Even though he hadn't fully arrived, even though there were still things for him to learn, God is gracious. God is gracious to him. And God was committed to continue to mold and to shape him. And we are Jonah isn't it nice to know that God just doesn't wait until we have it all figured out and we've got everything straight? No, he's gracious to us. And as we make a move, he makes a move of graciousness back. Notice in verse 10, as he says, salvation is from the Lord, then we have the Lord's provision. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now, I don't know how better we can say that, but, I mean, that's just what it was. I mean, kind of imagine that. You are vomited out of a fish. He was regurgitated out. I mean, the, the fish threw up. Think about what that smells like the last time you smelled that. It's not a pleasant thing, and you have this you're right in the middle of it. I mean, you are disgorged. It is a smelly event, an unpleasant event. But guess what? Jonah is grateful. I mean, I don't know what that, I don't know how to reproduce what that was like, but that was a very unpleasant thing. But Jonah's grateful because he's no longer in the belly of the fish. I like the way old Palmer Robertson Worded it, he says, the creature that had been a dungeon for him now becomes Jonah's free transport to the beach. <laughs> Very true. Not exactly transported in the way he might have wanted to be transported, but he's glad to be back on the land. Now that leads us to the lessons we want to learn from this section of Jonah. And there are three that we're going to highlight. The first lesson involves the cameo of Calvary that we see in the book of Jonah. There's an interesting comparison and contrast between Jonah and Jesus. I want you to see parts of this. You see, Jonah was from Galilee, and Jesus was from Galilee. 
Jonah wrestled with the will of God, and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane wrestled with the will of God. In Jonah's case, his death saved others. In Jesus' case, case, his death saved others. Jonah entered the jaws of the fish. He was there for three days. Jesus entered the jaws of the grave, and he was there three days. Jonah was regurgitated from the fish, and Jesus was resurrected from the grave. The sailors were doomed. Their only hope was the death of another. And sinners are doomed, and their only hope is the death of another. In Jonah's case, he must die so that they may live. In Jesus' case, he must die so that they may live. And so you have with Jonah the one for the many, and thus you have with Jesus the one for the many. Now I point out this cameo of Calvary to make this point. There are some of you who have been involved in listening to our study of the book of Jonah, and the whole reason why God is having that happen is he is pointing to a Savior that you need The whole reason is he is pointing to the fact that there is a rescuer that you need. And it's important to understand that you are doomed and your only hope is the death of another. And he had to die so that you could live. And so if you do not know him personally as your rescuer from sin and judgment, realize that's why God has you involved in this. To point you to the one who is the Savior from sin and judgment. Second lesson we have in the book is that God is gracious even when we are guilty. God is gracious even when we are guilty. Carrie Wesley tells the story of a young man who had decided to stop serving the Lord. He's like many people. He had a few problems in his life, and he concluded that God was neglecting him. And so he stopped attending church. He started living the wild life. His prayer life came to a screeching halt. And before, uh, he kept a big Bible on the dashboard of his car. And when he went to work and he got a break, he would often go out there and read from the Bible. Well, the Bible remained in this little rebellion he was in, in the car, but he rarely ever opened it. He was trying to dismiss any notion of God from his life. And then one Friday evening, on his way home in his car, he had a blowout. The roads were icy, and he lost control of the car. And as it crossed the median, he started to pray, but he only had time to say, Lord, have mercy. And after he prayed, the car flipped over several times, and when the police and the ambulance arrived at the scene, They said, the driver of that car has got to be dead. The top of the car on the driver's side was badly crushed, and once they pulled open the car door to peer inside, they noticed that the young man was still alive. And the only reason he survived was because something had lodged between his head and the roof of the collapsed car. And once they removed him, they found the object was that big black Bible that he had stopped reading. And Kerry Wesley goes on to say, I I guess you know now that that brother is back on the right road. 
And he said, I'm glad that God hears us when we're in those tight spots. Men and women, God is gracious even when we're guilty. What does that mean? Stop running from him. (laughs) Stop running from him. I love the words of the Lord Jesus in John 6, 37 when he says this, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I don't care how guilty you may feel. You may feel you are so far beyond God being able to do anything with you. Just remember that God is gracious even when we are guilty. Whoever comes to him, he will never drive away. Then the third lesson is that the Lord is the one who delivers us from troubles. The Lord is the one who delivers us from troubles. Seek Him. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 107 as we get ready to close. And I want you to see this is a whole psalm about how the Lord is the one who delivers. And it would be a great psalm for you to spend some quiet time with the Lord in this week. The Lord is the one who delivers us from troubles. Notice Psalm 107, verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And then he begins to pick out different groups of people who experienced deliverance from trouble uh, by the Lord. In in verse 5, he says, uh, They were hungry and thirsty. And their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them to a straight way. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness. The Lord is the one who delivers us from troubles. Seek Him. Notice in verse 10, there were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains because they had rebelled against the words of the Lord and they'd spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor and they stumbled and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. Verse 17, others, fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities were afflicted. Notice verse 19, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and he healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. The Lord is the one who delivers us from troubles. Seek Him. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you again for this book that is alive and that speaks to our hearts right where we are. We are Jonah. We are. And Father, we thank you that you are a God who is gracious even when we're guilty and we should just flat stop running from you. And I thank you, Father, too, that you are the one who delivers us from troubles. And when we are there, may we seek you. 
and we know that you will meet us there. That's the kind of God that you are. Father, we would pray you would take each one of us one step closer in our knowledge of, in our walk with you, for your glory and for your honor. Amen.